Psalm 20. Psalm 20 goes with 21, but uh, we're not going to do either tonight. I'm just going to read Psalm 20 to you, and then I'm going to use it um, to talk about praying the promises of God. And then next week, um, I will be with my bride at a conference for married people, and, uh, and then Isaac Howard is going to exposit the two psalms. All right? Okay. He looks surprised. I meant to tell you. All right, let's, let's read the text. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. Father, we love you, and uh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, as we're talking about the promises of God tonight, um, all the promises are important, but when it comes to praying them, uh, we need to be uh, discerning and careful, unless we just fall into disappointment, and so I pray that you'd instruct us tonight, and then uh, next week, Lord, as Isaac brings the word, Pray that you would grant him grace to exposit the text carefully and apply it wisely for our sake, Lord, and for your glory. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right. For just some context here, I want to say a couple things about the, the Psalms here. Um, the, the two are interesting because they were used in Israel's public worship as a prayer for the king's victory in battle, which would in turn, of course, if he was to secure victory, uh, that would provide security for Israel, prosperity. It would uh, preserve their way of life and their religion. Um, now, I'm so glad that this whole context here uh, does not apply to us in any uh, real sense, because Imagine coming here to worship God just days before our community engaged in war with a foreign enemy. Now, I, I don't mean a moral struggle uh, by the word war. It's not a metaphor. And I don't mean a spiritual foe by the word enemy. This is a physical conflict with physical foes. So imagine joining here in the auditorium to petition God to grant us victory over our enemies in mortal combat. Like coming here for a, that, that particular special purpose. Could you imagine? But that was the reality that Israel faced all the time. All the time. That's the historical context and actual purpose for these psalms. The day of trouble was upon them. You know, boots were on the ground. Sabers were being rattled. Israel was going to war. But what is beautiful about it was, as the text says, some people uh, put their hope in chariots and horses. But by coming into 
the sanctuary, the people were demonstrating that, no, those things might prove to be helpful, but we put our trust in the name of the Lord our God. That is a beautiful thing. And uh, under uh, David's um, kingship, uh, they never suffered defeat. Pretty amazing, huh? David was a, he was a man of war. He was a, 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 not just a soldier, but he knew how to rally troops and um, engage in combat. But there's more to this. We've often heard people say, and uh, many books have been written on praying the promises of God. In fact, um, Gabe Anzalini, because I had mentioned this last Thursday, he found a book on the promises of God to give it to me, uh, to harass me because we have a history of being sarcastic about some people that just use the Bible flippantly uh, to try to secure their own ends. And uh, oftentimes they do that out of Bible promise books uh, that aren't particularly accurate. And uh, we're going to talk about some of that uh, tonight. Uh, You've seen, I'm sure, some of those books. You've seen uh, graduation cards, which I'll bring up in a minute. Uh, You've seen uh, placards. You've seen um, uh, bumper stickers, uh, even political slogans that invoke, if you will, one of the promises of God. And most of the time, it's to my horror when I see those things. Uh, I think it doesn't make the Christian community look good uh, for various reasons. Um, But praying the promises of God was actually a common practice of God's people in the Bible. As these two psalms are, uh, that's what their hope is in. They're they're actually looking back uh, to promises that were made. But one of the the best ones, I think, is in Daniel chapter 9. It's a clear example of um, uh, someone praying the promises of God. And in that text, uh, Daniel was reading Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. And he discovered that the Babylonian captivity, according to uh, what God had told Jeremiah, would last 70 years. Well, Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, but Daniel went and did his math. And he knew that the 70 years was coming up. And so what he did was he got on his knees and he began to repent for his own sins, for the sins of the nation, and then to pray in accord with what Jeremiah said about Israel. And then he began to look forward, not for him going back to, to Israel, but for his people, and uh, that they would return, secure the land, and then hopefully live in obedience to God's word and enjoy his blessing there in the land. And so what we find is there, and then also in Psalm 20 and 21, this isn't, these aren't random requests of the people. Uh, they're not uh, hoping on nothing but chance that God would um, decide um, to ha- grant mercy and victory to them. No, their prayers were rooted in God's covenant promises to Israel that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 during the life of Abraham. And at that time, God made a covenant with Abraham to give his descendants the land of Canaan and the cities within its borders. And understand that any promise that is made to Abraham that concerns his descendants, that promise is also made to his descendants. And then, of course, that same promise was then made to uh, Isaac, Jacob, the children of Israel, and it's repeated throughout Israel's history. David uh, wrote about it many times. He knew the promises, and David frequently was banking on them. 
And so the psalm, Daniel 9, many, many others, it's rooted, inspired by God's promises. Um, and they were doing it also in worship. So we have grounds for praying the promises of God. Uh, but do we have biblical precedents to pray any promise of God? Can we just, um, you know, do the, the lottery ball thing or just drop our Bible and then put our finger on it and then go, ooh, I like the sound of that promise. Uh, I think I'll pray that for myself. Uh, do we have precedents for that? Well, hopefully we can answer that tonight. Um, I'll start by just saying no, uh, and there's good reasons for it. But I think that there are some guidelines that we can uh, follow, that we can use, uh, that will help us know which ones we can pray. And uh, it's always, of course, an, a matter of biblical interpretation. Those who pray any promise of God without discretion, they're just misinterpreting the scriptures, or they're not in interpreting at all, they're just taking someone's word for it. They've read it on a bumper sticker and go, oh, that's really great. And uh, they haven't looked, it into, looked into it themselves and looked at the surrounding context. So um, let's look at some, some guidelines here, considerations. Uh, you always want to look at the nature of a promise, and I'll explain myself there. The duration of a promise. You know, if a promise has an expiration date, um, what good would it be to pray that prayer? You get it? And then a recipient or recipients of a promise. What good would it be to pray a prayer that doesn't apply to you? All right, so let's look at the nature of a promise. Uh, this is essential to knowing if we should be praying them or expecting them to come to pass. By the nature of a promise, I'm mostly concerned with uh, some, hopefully not too big of words when we're done here, but uh, whether or not a promise is unilateral or collateral, we might say bilateral, unconditional or conditional, is it irrevocable or is it revocable? Let's, let's look at them. Here they are. All five concern us. Uh, but I don't think we should make it too difficult. Let me try to bunch some of them together because they often come in pairs. Uh, conditional promises uh, are also collateral, and unconditional promises are unilateral when we find them in the scriptures. Okay? Conditional promises are, uh, we might say, if-then promises. And I'm going to give you an example of one, which make them bilateral, meaning that both parties involved involved agree to um, uh, some kind of responsibility. If you do this, then I will do the following. If you do not, then I am released, potentially, uh, from my responsibility. And then unconditional promises are um, their I will promises. Uh, only one party bears any responsibility, which makes them a unilateral promise. There's no if or then kind of agreement, one party promises to do something, and they are bound to do it. Hopefully, the person that is binding themselves to do something is just God. And when a man does it, it's usually called an oath, and men are terrible at oaths, keeping them. And so in the New Testament, Jesus says, you know, let's just not do that, okay? Uh, just let your yes be yes and your no, no, Anything else is from the evil one. Okay. So let's look at a, a conditional promise of God with bilateral, collateral responsibilities. It's Exodus 23. Uh, I'll post it up there for you. I can't do all of them because some of them are rather long. But Exodus 23, verse 20 through 22. 
which actually kind of fits with Psalm 20 and 21. Here it is. God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off, meaning I will annihilate them. Okay, the promise here is conditional and it's bilateral, it's collateral. It has collateral responsibilities. Look again at verse 22. You see the if-then. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. You see the conditional nature of the promise. If you obey, then I will be enemy to your enemies. Now here it appears to be a unilateral statement because only God is speaking. But Israel later responds and agrees to all the terms of the covenant and uh, this collateral promise. So both God and man bear responsibilities. Okay? God promises victory if they obey his voice. Uh, what's interesting about this promise is it extends way beyond all of this. God also promises uh, if they obey his voice, if you, then I will, he says, prosper your harvest take away all sickness, abolish all miscarriages, abolish all barrenness. He guarantees long life, fullness of days, and then he sets the boundaries of Israel for them. He promises them from the river Euphrates to the Nile River, uh, clear up to the north, down to the Red Sea, uh, quite the real estate that God has promised to Israel. And then there's many, many uh, more things listed uh, throughout the Torah. So here we have a clear example of a conditional promise with uh, collateral responsibilities. Both parties have responsibilities. Now, if you are to pray a promise of this nature, conditional, collateral, first make sure that you are fulfilling your responsibilities. If you're not, don't expect the promise to come to pass. And if you're not, don't pray for it to come to pass. Repent and ask God grace to fulfill your responsibilities. Okay? And then you can trust that God will bring his promise to pass. You understand? Because God will just wait until you get it. And um, until you repent, until you begin to walk in a way that is well-pleasing to him. Now, I'm not saying pray this promise because it don't apply to you. Okay, we'll look at that a little bit later. Now let's look at an unconditional promise uh, with only unilateral responsibilities. Genesis 15. This is my favorite covenant in all of the Bible other than the new covenant. Okay? God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So God's promising Abraham, I'm going to give you the land. But Abraham says, I mean, how do I know? I mean, what's, what token will you give me? I mean, what's, how do I know this? So God tells Abraham to get him a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now when God said to get those things, Abraham went to work. 
because Abraham knew exactly what to do with them. He takes all the larger animals and he cuts them in half. And he sets the parts opposite one another, except for the, the, uh, the birds. Um, and he sets them opposite of one another. Okay, It's interesting, the word for covenant in verse 18 comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut. God was cutting covenant, about to, with Abraham. And typically this kind of covenant was a bilateral covenant where both parties were agreeing to certain terms and conditions. Both had obligations. And once the terms and the conditions were agreed upon, both parties would then walk between the animal parts to ratify the covenant. The idea behind the animals being cut in two established the serious nature of the covenant itself. Each party was saying, in effect, if I do not fulfill my responsibilities, the ones that I have agreed to, then let this happen to me. Let me be cut in two. That would be, um, we should use those today. We have actual um, historical documents uh, from the time of Abraham in the cuneiforms uh, where this kind of covenant was being practiced. So typically, both parties would pass through the animals, but before that could happen, the text tells us that God put Abraham to sleep, knocked him out, and then he made the covenant with him, and he said this, Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. He's talking about Israel going into Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces." So while Abraham was asleep, God passed through the animals by way of a smoking oven and a burning torch. And then the Lord ratified the covenant saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The the covenant, this promise contains no if then. Abraham was not conscious to be provided any responsibilities. There was nothing he could agree to in his sleep. Okay? God knocked him out, and God placed all of the responsibilities of the promise upon himself. There's no conditions. There's no agreement, no terms, no conditions. It doesn't depend on Abraham's obedience. It doesn't depend on his faithfulness. Okay? Neither does it depend on the obedience or faithfulness of Abraham's children. Yet the promise is unconditional, It's unilateral. Just God has responsibilities. Now, those are the promises in the Bible that I really like. The ones that God just says, I will do this. I will do this. Okay. If you're going to pray a prayer of this nature, pray that God will fulfill his prayer, or your prayer rather, in his timing, and that your heart would be worthy of it. Okay. It's going to come to pass. So just ask God that you'd be ready for it. Okay and that your life would be in such a condition that you could glorify him through it. So we've looked at conditional um, collateral covenants. Uh, We've looked at an unconditional unilateral covenant. Um, That's essential to understanding the covenants themselves. Another important thing to discover is whether or not the promise is irrevocable, irrevocable or revocable. 
at first glance, we might be tempted to think that if a covenant is set on conditions, the covenant can be revoked if the conditions are not met. That is not necessarily true in God's economy. Okay? It may be true, but it may not be true. How do you find out? You look at a bumper sticker. That's how you find out. <laughs> no, you look at the context. Okay? Um, what we find out is that it might just be a long time before those conditions are eventually met for the promise to be fulfilled. Okay? Looking back at Exodus 23, we might be tempted to say that the land promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 can be revoked because of Israel's disobedience. But at a closer look, you realize that the land promise itself is not at stake, but being blessed in the land is at stake. Okay? The land promise is a no-matter-what kind of promise. God gave it to Israel unconditionally. But whether or not Israel will be blessed in the land, that's what depends on their obedience to the Word of God. Okay? But does that mean the promise of being blessed in the land can be revoked because of Israel's disobedience? Can Israel, by their disobedience, forfeit the promise of God? Not this one. This one is very interesting. This promise of blessing in the land, it cannot be revoked by their disobedience. Blessing can and has been delayed in Israel's history, as we know, but the promise has not and cannot be revoked. I want you to understand something about uh, whenever God enters into a collateral agreement with us. If he does not cause our obedience, that promise will never come to pass. We are too broken. We're too broken. Okay? So on her own, Israel will never be faithful enough to secure God's blessings. Not all of them. Okay? But God is able to secure Israel's faithfulness by way of his spirit indwelling them. Okay? That way the conditions will eventually be met. Here's how. Uh, you're going to have to turn to this one. Or you can just, I guess you can just listen. I'm going to read it to you. I like to see it. It's Ezekiel 36, starting in 22. Ezekiel 36, 22. Listen to what God says to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. 
Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, then they shall know that I am the Lord. That is a crazy promise in light of all that Israel has done. Yeah. A number of things are clear from the passage. Israel wasn't faithful. That's verses 22 through 23. And then it's just scattered about in there. Their profanity, their idolatry, so many things. Also, the land is still theirs, verse 24. God forgives them, verse 20, or will forgive them, verse 25. God secures their obedience, verse 26 and 27. I will cause you to walk in my ways. The covenant, in spite of their disobedience, still stands. Verse 28, Israel will be blessed in the land. Remember, that was the one that was conditional. But God says, you were disobedient. I will be the one that secures your obedience. And then I'll bring the promise upon you. I will bless you. And the covenant in verse 30 makes the covenant, or the, the statement in verse 30 makes the covenant irrevocable. So even though it was collateral and conditional, it's still irrevocable. It's just one example of many where God promises that Israel will not only possess the land according to his unconditional unilateral promises, but Israel will also be blessed in the land according to their conditional collateral covenant with God, causing their obedience, ensuring their blessing. So even with, as we said, a conditional collateral promise, you still have to look to see if it's revocable or not. The context of Scripture must be looked at closely. Next thing has to be discovered about a promise. Duration. You have to study the, the, the duration of a promise, okay? In the context, how long will this thing last? Is it eternal, the promise, or is it temporal, permanent or temporary? Um, promises may, uh, they may not have an expiration date. How disappointing it would be if you didn't read the following verse of a promise, after a promise, that gave the expiration date and you've been praying it all these years. You understand? Yeah. Context is king. When does the promise begin? Also, you need to look at. And when does it go into effect? And then maybe then, when does it come to an end? You may find that a promise does not begin immediately in the scriptures, but it begins in the future. Uh, we have some of those recorded in the book of Daniel. God gives promises to Daniel that would not come to pass, uh, not, but a couple hundred, well, a hundred and some years after his death. And then some of them thousands and thousands of years after his death. So Daniel, Revelation, have some that will not be fulfilled until the end. Uh, I know that uh, some people 
uh, are in a frenzy right now and they think that things are unraveling as they're stated in the book of Revelation. Um, I differ strongly with them uh, because when I read the Old Testament passages that are um, uh, from where Revelation is drawing from, that doesn't look like anything in Revelation. And uh, so I would, if I was you, I'd hold off on those. Okay, don't, uh, just chill, just relax. It's not what's happening right now. Um, some people are saying that it's a uh, uh, rehearsal. I, I agree with that. It's probably a rehearsal for the end times. All right, recipients of the promise, recipient or recipients of a promise. Uh, I think that this is probably the most important thing to discover, especially when praying the promises of God. Uh, we need to figure out from the context to whom God is making the promise. Who is God making the promise to? If it doesn't apply to you, it really is foolish to pray for its fulfillment in your life. Um, in the scriptures, we find that God makes promises to individuals, to groups, to ethnic Israel, and then to the church. Uh, we find all of these in the scriptures. So let me give you some example of a promise to an individual. Uh, when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, you know, after he uh, deceived his father by the help of his mother uh, to take that blessing from Esau, he fled. He laid down in a place that was previously called Luz. Later, uh, it was called Bethel, the house of God. And that night, we know that he had a dream where God made a number of promises to him. And one particular was meant only for Jacob. It goes like this. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So God's promise to uh, be with and keep Jacob, it means to protect him. It means to guard his life. Well, God also promises to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan and that he will not leave him until he has done all that he has spoken to him, of course, in this context. Now, these three promises only apply to Jacob. And it's not for anyone else to read, claim for themselves, and then expect God to come through for them. Not even the first promise, which guarantees God's protection. God does not promise to protect all his people in the same way that he promised Jacob. No one should pray this prayer. No one. Okay. Now, what often happens is that, from my experience, is that people will find a, a, a promise like this, and they'll kind of immediately on the surface go, well, that one certainly doesn't apply to me. And they pick apart the verse until they come to a little bit, and they, they take something like, behold, I am with you and will keep you, and I'll not leave you until I have done what I've spoken to you. They gut the rest of the promise out. They put everything together, and, and then they go, that promise is for me. And then they, they stand on that promise. They depend on that promise. And the whole time that God is saying, I didn't make that promise to you. Okay. And, um, and then if God doesn't protect them in the way that they think that he should protect them, what happens? God, why are you being unfaithful to me? God, where were you? Why didn't you keep your word? It's not healthy for people in their faith. But God didn't make the promise. We should also determine from the context if a promise was given to a group. Uh, one example is, this is found in Genesis chapter 9. Shortly after Noah and his family got off the ark, says, thus I have established my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy 
the earth. Now, the covenant uh, had to be spoken to someone. It was spoken to Noah and his family, but the promise is made to all living things. It even says it in the text, all animals, all people. And then God even gave us a sign to reassure us that he would keep his word. So we have the rainbow in the sky. Now, it floods here frequently, uh, and some have said that we'll the, the, the promise to never flood the earth again is God will never flood locally. Well, then God is a liar because we have local floods here and they're not every hundred years, by the way. Okay, yeah. Something else we notice about this promise is it's unconditional. It's unilateral. It's irrevocable, verse 12. For, he says, for perpetual generations. Uh, aren't you glad, right? Because we would flood the earth every afternoon if it was conditional, Right? It would be a daily affair. So the promise is made to individuals, and those promises only apply to those individuals. We have promises that universally apply to all mankind, and uh, we can pray those if you want. Um, I will probably never pray that God would flood the whole earth again because of the nature of this promise here, but I will be thankful for it. Uh, what a devastating, terrible thing. But there are other promises that only apply to what we would say is specialized groups, okay, like promises only made to ethnic Israel and promises that are only made to the church. Now, this is probably the most controversial and confusing discussion about Bible promise, uh, promises simply because of a position called replacement theology, or if you like big words, it's supra-cessationism. And um, the view holds that all the people of God are Israel, or all the people of God are the church. Uh, Israel to them is not an ethnic group, but a title that refers to God's people, whether Jew or Gentile. Uh, they do not see any distinction between ethnic Israel and the church, nothing at all. Now, I make the distinction uh, between them because the scriptures do, and, uh, and because there's no in indication in the Bible that they're uh, the same group. I, I don't know of a single text in the Bible that confuses the two, not one. Uh, Israel is an ethnic group, and the church is a multi-ethnic group made of all believers since the resurrection. The church didn't exist before then. Uh, Jesus, remember, said, I will build my church. Uh, it hadn't been built, it did not exist until after the resurrection, until after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Ethnic Israel consists of the covenant people who received their covenant at Mount Sinai. I'm glad I don't have that covenant, okay? They're Jews. The church consists of the covenant people who receive their covenant from Christ. Some, some say, you know, in comparing the two, one was at Mount Sinai, one was at Mount Calvary. Uh, the, this covenant consists of Jews and Gentiles. The promises made to Israel apply to Israel, and the promises made to the church apply to the church. Uh, now, there are some promises that extend from Israel to the church. There's not very many. Uh, and we have to be careful to, uh, to, to uh, say which ones they are. We'll look at one tonight. Let me give you uh, some examples of each. Uh, some that apply to Israel only, the church only, and then to both. Let's do Israel first. Here's a, a popular promise uh, that's printed on bumper stickers and used for political propaganda. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7, 14. Um, you've probably seen this one, uh, especially in the last 10 years. 
Uh, it's appealed to and quoted as if it belongs to the church in America or to just America in general. How many of you guys have seen that? Yeah, yeah. But the context just doesn't permit it. In the context, God is speaking to ethnic Israel about the land of Canaan. About the land of Canaan. Uh, Americans are not the people of God. It's not true. And, uh, and America is not the land of promise. I know there's people that believe that. Uh, Mormons believe that. Uh, some covenant theologians have a tendency to, uh, dominion theologians have a tendency to think that, but it's not the land of promise. Here's another popular one used for graduation cards. God says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. How many of you guys have seen that on a, a graduation card? Yeah. The context is about God keeping his promise to bring ethnic Israel back from her Babylonian captivity because of her sin after 70 years and then prosper them in the land of Israel. So when people send this to graduate, it is, graduates, it assumes that they will be returning from captivity because of their disobedience to God. It's not so flattering when you keep it in the context, is it? Just hold on. God is going to redeem you from your sin. Yeah. Those things apply to Israel and we should keep them there. Here's some promises that only apply to the church. Matthew 16, 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I love this. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We see all of the world just encroaching onto the church, the world's morality falling apart, corruption prevailing. The church in trouble in so many countries of the world. And Jesus says, don't worry, the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. The gates, of course, is a reference to where city officials would meet to uh, make plans of war, to make judgments on civil affairs and things like that. And it's, it's, it's where the, in this context, it's where the schemings of, of war would take place. And Jesus is saying, I don't care what kind of schemes come about at the gates of Hades. They will never prevail against my church. Isn't that sweet? I love it. You can pray that puppy all you want. Okay. This promise is not to a nation. It's not to a nation, not to Israel, and it's not to America. It's made to the church, which is not a nation and has no land. We have no land promised to us, and we're not nation builders. Okay? We're kingdom builders. It should never be applied to the American dream, never to the federal government of America, or to Americans in general. The promise only applies to those who gather in Christ's name and are committed to his word. And we can be found in a house. We can be found on the beach. We can be found in a prison. We can be found anywhere. Yeah. Something that's interesting to note is that there are a number of promises that apply only to the church and are actually contradictory. They're contrary to the promises made to Israel. And this is one of the things that makes a huge distinction between the two. For her faithfulness to God's word, Israel is promised material and physical blessing military victory and peace in, in, in their land. But for her faithfulness to the word, the church has promised persecution, tribulation, violence, and martyrdom. That is the exact opposite of the promises of obedience to Israel. Paul told Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul was only echoing what Jesus said, Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We don't put that on graduation cards. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now I could go on and on uh, with promises like that to the church from Jesus and from the apostles, especially Paul and Peter. They're just, they just dump them on us. So there are promises to Israel that cannot apply to the church, and there are promises to the church that will never apply to Israel. But there are some promises that apply to both. The one that most certainly applies to both is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah made to Israel. But it pulls us in in the new covenant. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear in Hebrews 8 and 9 that this covenant includes both ethnic Israel and the church. Jeremiah 31 reads this way, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the covenant of Mount Sinai. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now that promise most definitely applies to ethnic Israel. He says, to the house of Israel and Judah. I always wonder, these people that think that Israel is the church, I always ask them, well, what is Judah then? What is Judah? It's ethnic. It's ethnic. But this promise extends to the church, which is not ethnic in nature. Speaking of the new covenant as something that has been ratified by Jesus, and it's applied to all believers, the author of Hebrews says, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Yes, indeed. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. And then guess what follows that statement in Hebrews 8? That entire section from Jeremiah 31, applying all of it to the church. Okay? So clearly it applies to ethnic Israel and to the church. Real quick, just a question. The promise of the new covenant, listen carefully, is it unilateral and unconditional, or is it conditional and collateral? The old covenant was conditional and collateral. The new covenant? Nope. It's completely unconditional and unilateral. Remember I said those are the promises I like. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. It's unilateral. It's based upon God and his faithfulness. Isn't that great? It's amazing. Yeah. It's also irrevocable. Hebrews 13 says this, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Completely irrevocable. Yeah. So some of the guidelines that we've talked about, we want to know the nature of the covenant. We want to know the duration of the covenant. We want to know the recipient or recipients of the covenant. Now I think that the greatest shortcut, of course, to find out whether or not you should be praying a promise of God is to see who it applies to, to see who it applies to. Now, if a promise does not apply to you, but applies to the church, it still applies to you. If it applies to an unconditional promise that God has made to Israel, you can still pray that for their sake, okay? Isn't David say, pray for the peace of Israel? God still has promises that are irrevocable that he will fulfill to them. I, I want to see them fulfilled because I know the context in which 
that last verse we read in Jeremiah 31 fits into, it fits into the millennial kingdom. You guys, I want nothing more than for the glorious appearing of Christ in his kingdom to come up on earth. And that's when God fulfills all of his promises to Israel. That's when he secures their obedience. John prayed that promise. He said, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's his appeal. That's his petition. Lord, come and fix the mess that we've made. Something that's always important is to to have it in our minds that we do not decide what promises apply to us. The scriptures do. As soon as you decide, you're in charge of the scriptures. You're the arbitrator of the text. The scriptures must govern all of that. As we've said, it's no benefit to pray a promise of the Bible that just doesn't apply to you. What a waste of your time. Also, if it has an expiration date and that expiration date is passed, you're wasting your time praying that promise. Okay. Also, it's not helpful to send cards with Bible promises in them or put bumper stickers on our car if the promise does not apply to what we're attaching it to. It's kind of a dishonest use of the scriptures. And I, I please don't do that. So I'm going to be looking in the parking lot. <laughs> we should be careful interpreters of the scriptures. If a promise applies to us, we should then determine uh, what the nature of the promise is. And if the promise is collateral, we need to evaluate our life to see if we're fulfilling our responsibility to God or to our fellow man. So one last thing I want to consider when it comes to the promises of God. I'm running late here and I'll finish up. The Proverbs. I think one of the things that has, has brought some of the most disappointment to people uh, in the church is when they come to the Proverbs and expect all that the Proverbs appear to promise, and they don't come to pass. Okay? Um, so I think a quick word about the, Pro- the Proverbs is necessary. People read them as if they're the promises of God, and that's not necessarily true. The Proverbs are Proverbs. That is, they're wise sayings about reality, but they're not necessarily promises. They're generalizations. And so what they say does not always occur or apply. We might say that the Proverbs or that what the Proverbs say is the outcome of a particular action is just the typical outcome, not a guaranteed result. It's just generally true. Many people have been very discouraged when what they thought was a promise did not come true from the proverb itself. Okay? If you read all of them as Proverbs, you're just going to find yourself very disappointed. But if you apply the principles of the Proverbs, it's generally true that you're going to get the outcome that it talks about. Okay? One of the Proverbs that I... Um, found to be generally true most of the time was what happens when you pull the dog's ear. What happens? But it doesn't happen every time. It was the time I didn't get bit. Okay? They're generally true. All right? Generally true. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. So going through this, I'm not discouraging you from uh, looking at the promises of God. I'm encouraging you to look closer at the promises of God. And then when you find promises that apply to you, uh, apply to something that is, is important to you, um, then go to God with them and pray your heart out. But if it's a collateral promise, um, we can't just ignore our responsibilities. Okay? We must ask God for grace to fulfill our responsibility so that then the promise can come to pass in our experience. Amen? Anything else is presumption. And the last time I checked, God is not too hip on presumption. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as your word says that all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and they are amen. And Lord, the promises that we have as the church, they come through Christ Jesus. 
And so, Lord, help us to search the covenant of Christ so that we might get a solid grip on the promises of God for us. Lord, help us to be wise in our interpretation of the text. Help us to be careful. And then, Lord, when we go to prayer, Lord, help us to rejoice in your promises. Help us to trust you with your promises. And Lord, when it's collateral, help us to evaluate ourselves closely, even asking you to look deeply at us, to see if there's any wicked way in us. And Lord, then to cry out to you for cleansing and grace to walk accordingly. Lord, I thank you especially for the promise of the new covenant, that by faith we enter into it, and then we're yours. We're yours. We're constituents of the everlasting covenant. Lord, thank you for that. And with John, the apostle, we we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. That sweet promise. So Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.